Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media and a contributing columnist on CIO.com. Twice a month, we produce this video show and podcast to stream live to you on LinkedIn and to YouTube on IDG's Tech Talk channel. Today's episode is sponsored by Cisco, the worldwide leader in technology that powers the internet. Cisco is out there inspiring new possibilities by reimagining your applications, securing your data, transforming your infrastructure, and empowering your teams for the future. Learn more about what they're up to at newsroom.cisco.com. We welcome all of our viewers today to join in the conversation with questions of your own. I've got our social media editor, Michelle Davidson, is keeping an eye on the stream and will pass along those questions for my guest today. And that guest is Nicole Natowski, who is the CIO of the National Resident Matching Program. Nicole is a transformational IT leader who's had the rare experience of becoming her organization's first ever CIO and building an entire IT operation from the ground up, and then staying around for the next decade to enable that business to thrive and grow. And that business is the private nonprofit National Resident Matching Program, which matches graduating medical student school, medical school seniors with residency programs across the United States. Known in medical education simply as The Match, the program started in 1952 when about 10,000 in internship positions were available for some 6,000 graduating U.S. med students. Now it's nearly 70 years later, and the number of those registrants have hit an all-time high of 48,700 in the year 2021. Behind those numbers is, not surprisingly for the audience tuning in to listen today, is an internationally recognized algorithm, comprehensive data reports, and some very advanced technology. And also behind those numbers, is the CIO who back in 2011, when the NRMP board decided to separate from its longtime managing organization, this CIO accepted the challenge of building out that entire infrastructure, workplace services, and application suite on a hybrid cloud platform. This was 10 years ago, mind you, when hybrid cloud was not the kind of term that boards of directors were used to tossing around. And into her newly created CIO role, Nicole brought more than two decades of operational excellence, strategic vision, and startup savvy in healthcare and association management. Before she joined the match, she held IT leadership roles at the Association of American Medical Colleges, Care Data, and the Maryland Hospital Association. Nicole, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mary Fran. I'm very excited to be here today to chat with you. Great. Well, and I have to admit, I very rarely, I think I have never started off an interview with a technical question before, but I would like to hear more. Before we go on, I'd like to hear more about that algorithm behind the creation of this private, nonprofit, very niche business, which only a handful of other companies in the world are, are even in your competitive space. So tell us a bit about that. You are so right. It's a very niche business for certain. Mm -hmm. um, 
back in um, really the 40s when the process of residency selection and internship was becoming so dysfunctional. Um, that is, of course, how our organization originated. And um, to make sense of this disorganized and chaotic market, um, the NRMP implemented the algorithm. Our, our, our algorithm um, yep. is a little bit unique, but it is based on a version of what's called the Gale Shapely algorithm. Okay. And to economists and mathematicians, um, this is more commonly known as the stable marriage algorithm that solves what's called the stable marriage problem. And that problem is really one of when equally um, sized parties um, have to order preferences um, for one another and to make sure that the results are stable. And what it means to be stable is that in the end, party prefers another partner to the one in which they were matched. Ah. So if it were a dating game, <laughs> yes. which is not, <laughs> um, you'd wind up more preferred partner <laughs> interesting the part yeah. the partner you preferred the most yeah so over the years um we have uh we the nrmp have um reevaluated and tweaked the algorithm um 95 uh was a time when we did that and we wanted to make sure that um the algorithm gave preference to the applicant's choices in the residency matching pro right process so me more than the programs so when you joined in 2011 it wasn't your job was you were separating from the managing organization and your job was to give the algorithm a, a safe new home and a new infrastructure how, how did that how did that work that was certainly part of it for sure um we've also modernized the technology that the algorithm has, has run on over the years i'm not going to spill all our secrets of course but uh, <laughs> when i uh years ago 20 20 plus years ago, when I started doing some work with uh, with the match, um, it was actually run on a mainframe. Uh, and today it's just run on a real old Windows server. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. Well, and you have the, uh, you started us out essentially with two employees. It was you and the CEO. That and today, today the company has about 20, more than 20 employees. Um, but you're still running the largest main residency match program essentially in the world. That's right. Um, yeah. Why has, uh, where is the competition likely to come from? And what is it about the match that, because uh, it's great to be the first mover in a field, but oftentimes you get a lot of, a lot of other companies that want to get in on that. So uh, t talk about that kind of that business strategy that has kept you ahead of the game. Um, part of it is certainly the longevity and the tradition, um, really, that surrounds medical education. Um, we've, mm -hmm. uh, part of it is built on, you know, those who came before me went through this process, and it's a process <laughs> that's familiar and trusted after almost 70 years. Yeah. Um, but part of why we are doing so well is really because the integrity um that folks have come to count on. They could count on our reliability, our integrity, the validity of our results, mm -hmm. um, and all our quality measures that are in place to produce consistent, reliable results and trusted technology. The whole system nowadays is, 
is obviously based on technology. That was the important reason why the NRMP felt they needed a CIO um, yeah. a little over 10 years ago. 20 years ago, we were FedExing, the, the company was FedExing match results around the globe. So yeah. that was 20 years ago. So technology oh, wow. played a very different role. The technology then was more about the mainframe and the algorithm. Today, it runs the entire core business. Well, and the algorithm itself too, I think you told me in, uh, in 2012, one, the, there was the, the math behind it was there were Nobel Prize winners involved. That's true. Dr. Al Roth and Dr. Lord Shapley uh, were awarded um, the Nobel Prize in economics for their work in uh, market design and game wow. theory. And um, yeah. of course, this is the basis, basis, mm -hmm. for our, basis for our algorithm as well. Yes. Well, and I just so I'll uh, thank you. I, I, I've been fascinated with hearing more about this this algorithm because I'll bet every parent who's had a student in medical school wondered how that all came about. Yeah. Um, but let me let me segue over to one of my more usual opening questions and talk about how the last year and a half, the disruption of the pandemic, what kind of impact has it had? Uh, was it was it kind of not a big deal or did it change some of the things that you needed to do or were thinking about as the CIO? Well, certainly, you know, it has been a, a sort of source of disruption, but, you know, I like to think of the glass as half full and say it's more of a catalyst um, okay. for, um, to transform the way we think about um, delivering workplace services to our staff, how we think about um, delivering um, content to um, our constituents. Um, it's certainly been a catalyst for um, how the graduate medical education community um, had to react um, to not being able to do everything that they need to do to train our future doctors um, that require, of course, a lot of hands-on and in-person um, activity. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, even the, even the interviewing for um, residency programs that we match um, these applicants into um, was all virtual. Um, and that, that is a, quite a departure um, from, from years prior in the history when everyone was flying around and navigating you know, the, mm -hmm. the flight patterns in the US to try to align their various interviews in different cities and the cost was associated as well. It was all yeah. virtual this year. Well, and I, it's probably very much the way boards of directors who had, you know, had a huge long history of always meeting in person. That was kind of the whole point and how quickly everybody had to readapt uh, to a lot of virtual meetings and technologies. But as we're starting to come out of this now, um, what are some of the lasting changes that um, will go forward that have actually been improvements for the for NRMP's business? Certainly, the hiring and talent um, mm -hmm. approaches have uh, have a vast improvement, and I'm so happy to where we wound up. Um, our organization in general has embraced. Um, hiring talent from all areas of the United States. I might say around the globe, we haven't done that quite yet. Um, but, but you're thinking about it. But we are, um, and it's not, nothing's off the table. You know, we, um, we've been a DC 
um, corporation for 20 plus years. We've been in the DC area and we all, um, you know, went to the office every day at 2121 K street and uh, we're not doing that anymore. And, um, I think the numbers are a quarter of our staff, if, if not up to a third now, um, do not live in the DC metro area. So, um, wow. So yeah. that is a big change, isn't it? That, that means you're essentially the work culture that you had over the past 10 years has probably shifted. Uh, talk a little bit about what the culture was like in the before and after view here. Sure, absolutely. Um, the other interesting factor I'll mention is that we got a new CEO um, in the past few years. So that has also impacted our culture um, in a fantastic way. Um, but uh, I think the biggest thing I could say about a leader is the word trust and mm-hmm. how um, how automatic that almost has to be now as a leader. Um, you have to trust your employees, trust your team. Um, everyone I think was myself included, (laughs) um, working a lot of hours, you know, in the early part of the pandemic, because, Mm -hmm. um, what else was there to do? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, but you know, as we've all come out the other side and trying to adjust our work-life balance and, um, uh, you know, we trust that our employees are, are, you know, working Mm -hmm to work and getting things done and they're doing it wherever they need to do it from. Yeah. I think that's a great, um, a great gift. (laughs) That was always the theory that, that the productivity would be just as good, especially for technology uh, people that they could do their jobs from anywhere. But, you know, in the old kind of command and control infrastructures in a lot of companies, there was always that, you know, like, if I don't have you in my sights, I'm not sure what you're doing out there. And and I've had so many CIOs that have just said to me, well, uh, that settled that question, because most organizations saw 20 to 30% increases in their productivity. But corresponding increases in employee stress. <laughs> and and I, I keep seeing stories now about it's like there's a huge migration from one job to another happening. It sounds like though this has actually been beneficial for your company because now you can essentially enter an arena and compete with uh, probably with other nonprofits for talent. Um, what has, uh, talk a little bit more about you had said one at one point, we're never really going back to the office full bore. Has that already worked its way into your hiring strategy? It sounds like it has. It certainly has. It certainly mm-hmm. has. And, you know, that was probably six months ago that we organizationally took that conscious effort that mm-hmm. um, we're no longer putting on our job postings, you know, DC metro area based, you know, it's right. Like, yeah. Uh, work from anywhere. Um, you know, so, mm-hmm. I mean, even feel like we're, competing with um, talent bases of for-profit industry as well. Yeah. Um, I've um, worked the majority of my career, um, aside from the short, you know, dot-com boom in the late <laughs> late 90s. Right. Uh, for nonprofits, um, but it's very intentional. And, you know, that, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, come to nonprofits for, you know, for those impassioned reasons. And yes. Um, I'm one of those people. <laughs> well, yes, your your entire career has been really in healthcare technology. 
So this is a, uh, the, it's, it's a good home base. We have our, uh, our first question from the audience. Wanted to know how you are handling the company vision during this pandemic situation, or perhaps handling maybe means more like how is it evolving? Um, I would credit, you know, our CEO, frankly, with, with a lot of, uh, uh, of that, um, helping us set and establish, um, she being new, I think that was certainly, uh, you know, a concern of hers and then being slapped in the face with, uh, hi, we're not going to be seeing each other every day. And let's try to figure out how this, how this vision has evolved. But I mean, we've, we've adopted probably a lot of, um, activities and things that other organizations have, have adopted. You know, we've had virtual, you know, staff meetings with games, you know, it was like a trivia game and you hire a company to come and do that. And, mm -hmm. uh, we're having a, a team, uh, party this Friday and everyone's getting, um, several pints of ice cream sent to their house. Oh, nice. <laughs> summer party. Um, so, you know, again, with, with technology, we're, we're certainly, um, more accustomed, right. To working, you're working, People in technology always work from home, don't they? Yes. yes, yes. Um, Do you see the, um, is there much for all of your customers, for those tens of thousands of medical students that are using the match, has, uh, has any of this uh, essentially affected the way they will be going into the next year? Are there, are, has travel picked up again? I mean, are those things that does the match get involved in any of that? Or is it just, is your job done once you match them up, it's up to them? Uh, we don't like to say our job is done because we, we care a lot, you know, being a nonprofit, we care about the whole continuum of graduate medical education and what comes oh, before us and what comes after us and how we can help shape um, the things in the world that are changing how we are creating these future physicians of America. Um, mm -hmm. There's always innovative ideas that people are um, trying out and some, some are, um, you know, being discussed and, um, you know, we're, we're looking to be a part of the solution at the NRMP so we can continue to uh, help provide uh, a, a method that's stable and reliable um, that people have come to count on for all these years, but but adapt to the changes that are happening. Such a you know, we think virtual interviews are are here to stay. That's great. Um, uh, that I mean, should and that should open up just numerically. That opens up the number of of schools that candidates can talk to. Certainly, and that in and of itself is an own problem because then there's more candidates, and there are already a plethora of candidates. So yes, um, yes. It's, it's a balance. It's a balance, but you know, we we at the NRP want to be part of the solution and helping helping ensure that um, the physicians of America are prepared for the next phase. I mean, residency training um, is still training. And yes. it's still part of graduate med medical education. Um, they need that training to be competent and reliable physicians um, to act independently on their own in a few more years. So right, right, exactly. Well, let's pivot over and talk technology for a little bit. Um, mainly, your your plans going forward into the rest of this year and into twenty two, and uh, start with telling us how your original 
hybrid cloud strategy of 10 years ago, which is what you know we already mentioned was a pretty unusual leading edge bet at the time. How has that evolved and what is all that, what does all that look like now? So that's, um, that's a great uh, story to tell, Mary Fran. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the story of going to the hybrid cloud, uh, you know, and telling the board about that story was certainly a, what is that again? Yes. <laughs> And are we going to be safe? And what is the what are the clouds all about, right? So, um, you know, I had to be convincing and purposeful in my strategy at the time, and it was definitely uh, a purposeful evolution for how to get us to the private cloud we're now on today. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been seven years, six years now. I'm trying to remember that we. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we left the hybrid cloud um, at, a, at a wonderful vendor rack space, and now we're on Amazon. And that was really the next step in our evolution. Um, it, gave, it gave us um, and me really an opportunity to make sure I had the talent yeah. um, necessary to really um, run a secure, well-maintained, high-performing um, public cloud. Um, mm -hmm. While it's very easy to go spin up <laughs> a bunch of servers at Amazon, you know, making sure we have um, the security and performance uh, requirements well established was obviously very critical. Yes. Well, and I remember too, then the early days of the cloud, and I've, I've been around long enough now that I actually remember when the cloud was, you know, kind of a big deal. I still remember client server technology. So now I'm really dating myself. But um, the, the, the biggest initial question was security. And when you kind of fast forward to today, if you were going to a board today to talk about cloud strategies, do you think the conversations would be different? Do you find that, uh, you know, in healthcare education and various other areas that people with more of a business side career background, are they more comfortable now with cloud? Um, I do think that they are, but I do think there's still um, some fear, but I think most of the fear is more as of late, um, you know, with the past year, we've also seen such um, rampant security incidents. Ransomware. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, those cyber attacks, I think, are really what um, are more bringing the fear. I think the comfort yes. of, uh, you know, people have their own Dropbox now that they store their photos or, yeah. you know, the, the regular yeah. old um, everyday uses that people have adopted in their regular lives, I think, um, are more relatable now. So yes. I think the story is easier to tell. Um but as we in technology know, you know, you're always, um, it's what keeps us up at night. And what's, it's certainly what keeps me up at night most is, is you know, the, yep. security, the security aspect. And it's not. Uh, well, what's, what I find so interesting is that, you know, the top concerns of CIOs all, over the years, which has always been talent and business strategy and cybersecurity, those are actually now shared with the board with yeah. boards, with CEOs, there's not that huge gap between that used to exist maybe 10 years ago about what CIOs were concerned about and what their board members were thinking of. Um, I know that one of your, I think you had mentioned when we were preparing for this, that one of your new hires will be a senior director of security. Is there, is there anything you can tell us about what you're doing on a security front that you feel safe talking about? You know, I always bring up the question and, you know, oftentimes CIOs will say, uh, just let's just say we're doing more, you know, but, but is there, I know that you, your staff is small and you mainly 
they are mainly charged with managing all your various providers. So what can you what can you tell us about that? Um, yeah. So what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's um, I think it's, you know, the more um, to be more intentional and more focused um, and more um, proactively, you know, prepared to exercise yep. um, all the practice work and um, tabletop exercises and, right. and that, um, to be more governed um, mm-hmm. or on a daily basis. Okay. Um, Excellent. All right. Good. Well, let me ask you also, uh, you have a very niche business as we've been talking about, and as it expands, I know that there's some international competitors or interest in what you're doing. What can you tell us about where the match may be going over the next couple of years? Absolutely. So we, you know, we, um, we believe in what we do, um, you know, to the heart of hearts, to our core, um, and how we mm-hmm. can serve the graduate medical edu- education community. Um, it's not well known, but the NRMP actually has a wholly owned subsidiary um, called NRMP International. Um, I've traveled um, around the globe a couple of times now <laughs> on behalf of the organization um, to uh, share our stories and share um, the services we can offer um, to mm-hmm. our clients. Um, our current client is um, the Department of Health in the United Arab Emirates. Um, we specifically mm-hmm. help those in um, Abu Dhabi uh, mm-hmm. with the same process that we do here domestically. So um, many um, departments of health and organizations um, in other parts of the country um, over the past decade have been wanting to adopt um, similar graduate medical education and accreditation of practices that are those of the United States. Mm-hmm. And with that, they want to adopt the same practices and processes so that in fact includes a matching algorithm to help them um, with the same type of appointments um, yeah. that we do here. Interesting. So that is what we're doing currently for Abu Dhabi. Um, we've had many conversations with other um, other organizations um, around the globe and we hope to attract more clients um, certainly internationally doing the same thing we do now and um mm-hmm. we're open to other um medically related matching um ah, programs sure. uh domestically as well there's, right. there's quite a market for... those are kind of adjacency opportunities exactly exactly that's a fantastic we we actually use that word quite often um, oh, okay good <laughs> I guessed right. Um, tell me, we have a question from our audience, and um, it, it is secure, security related, so uh, hopefully you can help us out. Is moving away from traditional parameter security, or maybe that's perimeter security, to internal zero trust a realistic approach for CIOs and CSOs? It's a good one. It's philosophical enough that you don't have to get too specific. Yeah, it is. But what do you think of that kind of in a very um, a 30,000 foot view? Is that the way you look at it? Um, I, uh, I, I tend to be more on the cutting edge, not the bleeding edge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are those different? How are those different? <laughs> I the, the red is already visible and dripping in, in the yes. one, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. Bleeding edge always sounds pretty traumatic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
And so, cutting edge is more attention on that zero trust. Well, you know, I, uh, you know, when I was developing this organization strategy and, and approach, you know, I wanted to make sure uh, we were maintaining a modern infrastructure that was atypical for mm -hmm. most, for a lot of nonprofits. Okay. Uh, because I didn't want to be thought of that way. I wanted to be thought of as, you know, a modern organization that um, can continue um, maintaining the trust of, of the constituents that have held our trust for almost 70 years now. And, right, right. you know, um, that, you know, that does take some risk, whether or not, you know, zero trust is going to be part of my um, future strategy, I think remains re remains to be seen. I think um, I have um, I have a little bit um, different architecture. I um, I'm proud to say I don't own any servers. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, no main prayers there. That's no right. Um, not even in our workplace services. So um, yeah, uh, I have a you know, and my my architecture is very young, right? So it, it only right. yeah, it built um, ten years ago. So mm -hmm. uh, that's fairly young, right? And the legacy, yeah. any legacy I have is my own legacy. <laughs> no, I know you made the you made the point at one point that you know anything that is not working out or goes wrong, yeah. it's kind of your fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is good. You would have gotten the blame anyway, even if somebody else had done it, right? Um, the uh, well, thank you. That was that was actually a very that was very good and a very diplomatic response uh, to a security question. So I appreciate that. Um, let's uh, pivot over and talk about the way your role has changed over this last decade. I, you know, you mentioned the um, you do almost as much business development as a lot of chief strategy officers that I've talked with. So um, take us take us a little bit through that kind of arc that you've been through as the as the head of technology, as the final throat to choke when things go wrong with the CEO. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I'll definitely credit uh, both our former CIO, um, who I knew for 17 years, and our new CEO oh, for wow. allowing um, me the opportunity to be um, such a critical player in in all our conversations mm -hmm. in the in the business development space. Um, I've always credited myself with. Um, someone who wants to learn the business and, you know, I'm passionate about the business and that I'm in and how we could help fulfill um, all the objectives that the business is trying, trying to meet. And I've been able over the years to build such rapport with the leaders of the organizations that I work with, that they really, it, it comes to that word trust again. They know that I'm, um, mm -hmm. That I'm going to have their best interest in heart and and I'm kind of extroverted and I like to talk a lot and I'm, I'm passionate about our products and our services so mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of details obviously about the services we could deliver and really when we're um, talking about business development we are really selling our software as a service and matching um, expertise as a service those are really the things we're selling. So yeah. um, as the CIO, um, I have so much knowledge, um, obviously, and awareness of, of those aspects that it it's mm -hmm. really more logical that the, the CIO, uh, as long as they were a person who had interest in that, um, yep. could really make such fantastic contributions. Um, well, and who could also speak about it in, in business graspable terms, 
pretty much right from the get-go, it sounds like. Uh, and I mean, was that something that in your, in your prior roles and the other healthcare organizations that you worked in, was that something, has that always been a fairly natural ability for you to be able to talk in business terms, essentially, about the work you're doing to, to be that business development executive as well as a CIO? It actually has been, Mary Fran. And, you know, mm-hmm. the other opportunity I could tell a story about is when I worked at the Maryland Hospital Association um, mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. Um, they actually started a for-profit subsidiary called the Center for Performance Sciences. Yep. Much the same way we had built back then what we called the decision support system, built on some claims data, um, insurance claims data. And we ended up marketing. <laughs> I became the director of product development there and um, okay. mm-hmm. helped market that product again around the United States. And we in fact started selling that product line to other health, um, health and hospital associations around the United States. Yes. And then um, that's what led me to my dot-com era. I was working at it as an independent consultant because the um, Center for Performance Sciences decided to sell that product um, to a dot-com. And then they're like, please, you're the woman who helped, you know, invent this, right. <laughs> this yes. product. Come help us. <laughs> Come help us market it to our future clients. So um, that's what I did. So it's always, been, it's always been an interest and, you know, a thirst of mine. And I've been lucky enough mm-hmm. to have... Um, uh, CIOs at the time when I was, you know, the director of product development, now CEOs that have um, helped quench that thirst of mine. Yes. Well, and I've just, I'm, I'm always, whenever I'm talking with CIOs, another part of my brain is listening for um, boardroom column ideas because I write about um, various aspects of getting that seat on the board. And one of the things I just gave a talk uh, yesterday for our CIO Executive Council, and it was all about the steps you have to take in mapping that journey to the boardroom. And one of the big points is that a variety of experience like that, having run or contributed significantly to other parts of the business end up being far more important than anyone's technology chops, especially as technology leaders are looking for yeah, yeah. positions on boards. Um, so that is, that's all gonna come in quite handy when at some point you start crafting a, a board resume and going for that sort of thing is those, those kind of qualities will stand out. Um, let us, let me see, I, speaking of mapping career journeys, I know that that is, uh, you gave a recent talk a few months ago for the Council on Women in IT Leadership about mapping career journeys. And you have a very specific approach to it. So I wanna, I wanna get some of your ideas and advice on that um, about how you, know, you have your own homegrown framework that even has graphics. <laughs> so how does, how, what kind of advice do you give when you talk with other colleagues and CIOs about mapping that career arc and also talk about how your map may have changed over the last year and a half as you've had to i believe at some point we were you were calling yourself a recovering workaholic which i love that term i've been using it myself because even when you run your own business you find yourself becoming something of a workaholic again uh and i think we all tried to take a pause during the pandemic to, you know, evaluate those sorts of things. So take it away on that. Talk about mapping careers and 
changing things, you know, adjusting your map as you go along through something as remarkable in everyone's lives as the last year and a half. Certainly. Um, and obviously my, I guess, wisdom on this has certainly changed over the years and I probably didn't have as much wisdom, you know, 30 years ago as I do now on this topic, mm -hmm. but you know, what I, what I like to start out with is recommending to folks that you are your own professional GPS, right? You can't mm -hmm. um, let others navigate your path for you. Um, mm -hmm. So when you are considering making your own map, and I do encourage um, the young folks I talk to, both men and women, to really make mm -hmm. your own map. What's always been easiest for me is to look at my life in decades. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. Back when I was in, in my 20s, you know, it's like, where do I want to be 20 years from now? Um, and, uh, you know, but being thoughtful about what will what is going to fuel you, who's going to support you, who are your influencers and what do those things help you um, infuse your own career journey with? Um, I uh, like I said, I encourage, you know, it doesn't have to look like a map, but I encourage people to write these things down um, and really think about how your life tra trajectory and your career trajectory are going to intersect one another. Certainly as a working woman, um, mm -hmm. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I have, I have two kids. Um, I was very purposeful in my own journey that um, I wanted to get my career established to a certain point before I got married and had mm -hmm. children. Um, mm -hmm. Not everyone is that way. I have a cousin who's seven years my senior. She had children right out of college, but after they were grown, she decided to change careers. And that was fantastic for her. Yes. Um, so, you know, everyone's is different, but um, is. Mm -hmm. you have to navigate um, those choices. Mm -hmm. um, and they are, a lot of it is your choices. Um, yeah. Well, so, it, I, listening to you, it's hard to believe that in your 20s, it's so hard to figure that out because you're at a, so I remember one of the books that was um, so huge back in like the seventies and eighties. And it was the one about um, now I'm forgetting the, the name of it. It was the different seasons of your life um, passages. Yeah. Do you remember the passages yeah. book and that was all that. And it was like in your twenties, you're doing this, your thirties, you're doing that, your forties, you're doing that. We probably need a 21st century version of it because I think it's it's changed so much because of the way technology has changed and what we have access to and information and so forth. Um, the you also referred to this as your own professional GPS. So when you when you're tuning your GPS now and you're looking forward, I know you're so engaged with what you're doing now, but you have been there for a decade. So going forward, how do you mature and continue to enjoy a C CIO role that you have done for a decade and you kind of have it nailed? So how do how do you how do you envision going forward? You start scaring my board, right, Mary Fran? If they're oh well, there. and they, and then they'll turn around and they'll have to double your your salary, so no big deal. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to me, it's um, you know the the things in the world that are going on with security honestly fascinate me, right? It's, you know, like I said, is it is it a disruptor or is it a catalyst or is it something that's going to put a fire in your belly? I like to find the things that put a fire in my belly every day, you know, when I wake up and um, 
I, you know, I feel like I'm not done here, I, I guess is right. the reason why I'm staying. There's so many, yeah. so many opportunities um, to progress forward. Uh, you know, I, I think my own, you know, my own map has been altered in the past year. It's caused me to reflect on, mm-hmm. um, you know, the few years left, my kids are going to be in my house and, uh, you know, uh, trying to really um, throttle that workaho- workaholic tendency mm-hmm. that I think is, um harder to do when you're working at home. It's hard, for people who are natural workaholics. I think it's harder to do when you're at home. Yeah. And so that's, Isn't that's funny. Yeah. yeah. You'd, you'd think we'd all, you know, you'd think we'd all get smarter at that sort of thing, but I just, I, you know, I have days like that now where I'm, th- where I have to say to myself, what were you thinking? Why did you set up so much stuff in this day? And, you know, mm-hmm. we we're, we're having more pizza that we order than we did like when I was working out of my house, you know, full time. Um, what did, so what have you, what kind of conclusions have you come to about, or maybe what is your best idea for tamping down that, for keeping that workaholic recovering, I guess? Yeah. For me, it's been um, making a uh, an effort to invest um, in myself. I, I started playing tennis again about a year ago, and that's been Beautiful. the most fantastic thing I've ever done. Um, finding something else that fuels you. When I say what fuels you, it doesn't have yes. it doesn't necessarily have to be a work um, initiative. But in fact, mm-hmm. it probably shouldn't be. Um, I'm in a book club. I try to read 30 books a year is my goal. I try to read 30 books a year. Um, I love to read. Um, I'm involved in a charity um, with Mm -hmm. my daughter daughter called the National Charity League. And we do mother-daughter charitable events and um, volunteering and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and we're committed to that. It's a seven-year program. We commit to to do it together. Oh, Um, amazing. Okay. So, you know, other things that fuel, fuel me. Um, so it forces me to, <laughs> to step away from my desk. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think you told me at some point your husband kind of reminded you. He said, I thought you were going to be a workaholic anymore. And it was like one of those 16-hour days. Yeah, yeah. So, it happens from time to time. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. The... Um, we had if you're if you're willing to get dragged back into security one more time we do have a question from the audience and this one is about and i think it's especially relevant to healthcare organizations or any organization working in the healthcare field about whether you had recommendations on securing data when you're transferring it on the cloud is that something that you've that essentially the Amazon platform manages for you, or I'll, I'll bet it isn't because they can't no. guarantee their their security. So whatever you can tell us about your advice there would be great. Yeah, I mean, I would say the thing to remember about the cloud, and it's um, it's not very insightful, but it's that it's a shared responsibility. Yeah. Um, and the cloud is a vehicle for you to deliver your service. So um, mm-hmm. there are. Um, I don't want to reveal like all the things that I have implemented, certainly. <laughs> we, we would not expect you to. It's but, okay. Um, but what I would say is there, you know, particularly in the Amazon marketplace, there are um, a lot of reliable vendors that can help you secure your data, both in transit and at rest, um, mm-hmm. your backups. There's a lot of... Um, uh, partners and technologies that certainly would help you do it. And you, obviously, yes, you should do that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, to get it there. 
Okay, that, that seems like a pretty great answer. And we have another question that actually I think will pull us into the next section. Um, it said, I'd like to ask Nicole, what is her purpose? What motivates her? And we were going to talk next about some of your favorite, one of your favorite books that you had mentioned on professional development. So, but, um, so that's a very big picture, tough question. What motivates you? So, but take a crack at it. <laughs> I'm going to, and, you know, I will credit my current CEO, um, Donna Lamb with, um, introducing me to this book, um, called Authentic Gravitas by, um, Dr. Rebecca Newton. And, it is one of the best professional development books I've ever read. And my favorite quote from that book, and it, it applies to just your everyday life, um, not just your work life. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite quote is, what kind of impact do I want to have on the people I encounter today? So that doesn't have to just be at work, right? What kind of impact do I want to have on the people I encounter today? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's both in the, you know, the charitable acts that I described that I, you know, I want to give back to my community and my, my surroundings. I want to be a great example for my daughters, um, you know, for the people mm -hmm. I work with. Um, I want to be a leader that um, people want to be like. Um, one of the yeah. most touching um, emails I received a couple of years ago, a fellow I used to, to work with um, became a CIO. And I was so happy to see it, you know, on LinkedIn. I'm like, congratulations. This is so wonderful. You know, he wrote yeah. a lovely note. It was short, but he's like, thank you, Nicole, for being the kind of leader and, and mm -hmm. allowing me to watch you build the relationships you built with the people in the business and, you know, spending the time you did to learn and care and be passionate about what they do. He's like, that's one of the things that stuck with me the most. Um, and, he, and he says that he tries to use that um, in his role today. So, mm -hmm. well, that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Now, I I know as I was looking at I was looking at the book. I I also love to read, although I, I rarely read things that are like quote unquote good for you professionally. I tend to <laughs> I, I tend to focus. I'm very excited about like. Um, uh, Daniel Silva's newest book coming out. I love the spy novels. Uh, it's called the, the Cellist, it's called. Um, but I've also, on the podcast front, one of the, I've been, I keep talking it up every time I get on a call with the CIO, Brene Brown's new podcast, Dare to Lead. And she t she finishes all of them where she says, you know, stay, stay curious and kind and awkward out there. And it's all about, and she interviews a series of, authors of different books and one of them that i'm reading right now is called burnout how to complete the stress cycle and it's by this wonderful pair of sisters one of them is an orchestra conductor and the other one is a technologist i think of some sort um amelia and emily nagoski i think is their name and it's all about the science behind stress and burnout and how you have to complete the cycles so that you feel better. And it's just, and it's filled with really fun stories. And it was listening to them being interviewed on Brene's podcast that made me go and get that book. So I've been, I've been finding myself reading more of those business and kind of professional books because there are ways that they can be made very interesting. I'm going to pick up that one. This book that I recommend, I feel is the same way. It's very relatable. And yes, yes, so exactly. 
I can remember uh, years ago, I, I encountered my first book of the, um, let me see, it was, um, they are brothers, they are organizational psychologists and uh, in North Carolina. And we had uh, Dan, Dan and... Dan and Chip, and now the name is totally, but it was all about the emotional brain, and they've written books about decision-making, um, and I think it was called Switch, and it was like how you influence people. Chip and Dan Heath, that's who I'm trying to think of, and I noticed that uh, Dr. Rebecca Newton that uh, published this book in 2019, Your Authentic Gravitas, is also an organizational psychologist. Yes. Yes. Is. Yes, indeed. Um, now, the let me see. The when you read books like this, and one of the things you said was you really understand how important authenticity is to gravitas. So, I, from having read that, tell us what now what gravitas means to you. Lord, and it's it's not um, what most people would think. I think when mm -hmm think about authentic gra gra gravitas it's more about the person who has that you notice walking in the room or the person who um has the most commanding presence okay. um, and it's not necessarily necessarily that and in fact it sort of flips um on its head the theory of what mm -hmm. gravitas can mean and um how how a person's authenticity um really helps them align their intentions with their impact. So I, when I say that mm -hmm. quote, like what kind of impact do I want to have on the people I encounter today? Well, she says that I'm just repeating it because I love it okay. so much. Um, it forces you to think about your intentions. What intentional actions are you going to take today? Mm -hmm. Make sure that you have the impact. Um, yeah. And to do that, um, you have to increase your authentic authenticity. And, you know, I'm a, I think your beliefs, your upbringing, your values um, really shape um, your authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, do you come across as down to earth? You know, do you come across as a listener? Or do you come across as the person who wants to always have something to interject and say? Um, <laughs> Yep. Is that because you're an introvert or an extrovert rather, or is it, uh, you know, or is that your nervous reaction to, you know, if I have something to say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, it, it's, um, it's about, um, and, and they say this in the book and are, uh, you know, it, it's more about the small things that you do yeah. all throughout your day. Mm -hmm. Um, beforehand during and they say the spaces in between and I love how they say that the spaces in between matter more than the big things sometimes that's right yeah it's the the little things well whenever people start uh, telling you a story it's usually based on some relatively small incident in their life that had a big impact and it's true the gravitas uh, feels like statesmanlike executive presence I mean just the word itself feels weighty, but it's really more about the weight of your impact on people around you and, and just kind of like how you show up in the world is one of the ways Brene Brown always refers to it, which I think is just a, a great way to sum that up. Yeah. And I have, you know, a funny story my dad likes to tell from when I was learning to tie my shoes and I have a, I have oh, a, wow. <laughs> I have a twin brother. And oh. um, so we were, you know, of course they tried to teach us the things at the same time 
time, right? My dad likes to tell this story because he thinks it's a great description of how I attack everything in the world, <laughs> really, since, you know, since he's known me, which has been my whole yes. life. So there you um, go. <laughs> on the bottom step and you know my parents house in the foyer learning to tie our shoes and you know yeah. they showed us once or twice and you know I'm I sat there until I could do it yep. and it was like hours my brother <laughs> tried like three times is like I'm done with this I'm gonna do this another day he gets up and walks away yep <laughs> yes. so, you know it's just the perseverance you know yes. and the you know intention of I'm not gonna give up you know, until yep. I saw probably, yep. probably could be why I'm a workaholic too. I don't know. Maybe that feeds into that, that aspect too, right? <laughs> well, I was thinking about the whole extrovert introvert thing. And the joke I always make about our people, the extroverts, is that we are, um, we're speaking before we think, or we're thinking as we're speaking, mm-hmm. whereas introverts, and that would be the vast majority of the CIOs that I talk to, they always think before they speak. So it's often a more thoughtful, in a way I tend to think of CIOs as having more gravitas because a lot of them are introverts and they do tend to just be very thoughtful in their replies. Whereas with, you know, especially, and I'm way off the chart on extroversion. In fact, this is why I think the last year and a half has been incredibly difficult in terms of social interaction. The minute we were all vaccinated, I'm in Massachusetts and we have a very high percentage of that here. I've got several lunch and dinner appointments I've been making with people. I've been getting out of the house every time I have a chance. And my husband is the other end of the spectrum. He's one of those thoughtful people and an introvert. And he's like, he's exhausted just watching me hopping out of the house. He's like, what? Another meal out? You know? So it's just, I'm looking forward to a time when our leadership live shows can be done again in the studio and I can get people to come in. And it's just that fireside chat, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's going to, well, and I used, I, I probably six months ago would have told you that we had better, deeper, more fun conversations in person. But I think as we've all gotten used to working on video and understanding about staring into the camera on the, you know, where we've almost got this like bifocal kind of view of the people we're talking to, I, I now don't see as much difference in it. I really think people, we've all warmed up, I guess, to the idea of being able to communicate virtually and on video this way. I would concur. I would concur. Yes. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. You've been you've been so helpful, especially with all those security questions um, for a CIO who said, well, let's not get into too much security stuff. We ended up getting a lot of questions about it. I think it's on everyone's mind because there's so much ransomware in the news. And it's it's also very big with our boards of directors these days, too. So it's just I thought your answers were very good. And I think you are on safe ground every time you talked about them. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been a very fun conversation. And I've definitely got Dr. Newton's book on my my list to look into uh, to look into very soon and and pick up on some of that authentic gravitas. Thanks, Mary Fran. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed our time together today. Yes, so did I. Now, if you joined us late today, don't worry, you can watch the full episode of my conversation later today. It'll be on LinkedIn for a while, but also on our website, CIO.com, and then on YouTube's IDG Tech Talk channel. CIO Leadership Live is also available as an audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with CIO Nicole Natalski of the National Resident Matching Program as much as I did, and that you'll come back for our next episode when I will be here on Wednesday, July 21st, again at noon Eastern, and I'll be joined by John Marconti, who is the global CIO for Vanguard. Thanks again to our friends at Cisco for sponsoring this episode, and do take a moment to subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel, uh, IDG Tech Talk, because I'm sure that you don't want to miss any of our shows, and you can actually find all of our previous shows. We're up over 75 interviews with CIOs who are every one of them just as interesting and grand as the CIO today. So stay well, and we will see you here next time in two weeks. Thanks. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.